The Magical Mystery Tour is brought to you in living color on WTDR. My guest this morning is Amy Fusselman, author of Savage Park, a meditation on play, space, and risk for Americans who are nervous, distracted, and afraid to die, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The book just came out about a week ago. Amy, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. First off, I really, really loved Savage Park. Thank you. Virtually every page stirred up all sorts of delicious insights into the fundamental nature of being alive and my own experiences of and in space, recognizing space and time as like part of the fabric of my own life, as a part of it, along with everything and everyone in it. And I'd like to begin by reading something from your book, from page seven. Mm. Among the first things we learn about space as infants, having very recently arrived in it, is that we can't just leave it. We can move ourselves around in it, and we can be transported in it. But the fact is, we are here. Years go by, we grow accustomed to this strange and interesting situation, this hereness. And as adults, what we end up saying to our children about space and our human place in it is mostly a long and complicated narrative of how to move our bodies safely and respectfully in relation to other people and things. This adult-generated stream of language which basically completely ignores the idea that space is a medium that can be experienced and responded to sensitively is like a darkly magical incantation in that it makes space disappear. What children receive then is the notion that space does not exist, but people and things do. And it is people and things that must be navigated to, from, and around. And it is people and things that represent hazards or pleasures. They are not told that space itself is a beautiful and powerful medium that we are all connected in and through, and that space can and should be felt. Of course, it is understandable that we adults should hold this rather short-sighted perspective. There are many wonderful things to focus on here on Earth. The trees are lovely, the food tastes great, there are toys, and not least important, other human beings are fantastically interesting, and many serve as warm, comforting ballast to cling to as we float along, all of us, more or less aware of the fundamental situation that we are here for reasons unknown and one day we will not be here also for reasons unknown. Thank, that's such a beautiful reading. Thank you. Well, that little bit is, is really indicative of 
the content of this book. There's so many wonderful, juicy pieces in this book, and it was such a pleasure to read it. In fact, I, I read it a second time, being only 130 pages and really a very short, small 130 pages. It was pretty amazing how much juicy, meaningful content was in it. Thank you. That's such a compliment. I, I'm struck that you read this, this piece first because it, in terms of process, when I, when I wrote that, that piece, I really felt like I had landed on what the book was, was going to be. It was that particular passage was like, it was like a boulder that suddenly appeared that I knew that I could stand on in terms of where the book was heading. It's a, that, that is like kind of the bedrock of the entire piece for me, I'm, and I love that you, that you chose it. So how did you stumble upon this topic? I mean, it's, it's a very basic and deep topic for those of us here in this world, but how did you stumble upon it? Most people don't ever talk about these sort of things. Yeah, I thank you. I, I, I actually um, I went to Tokyo at the invitation of my friend, and um, I had my sons were five and two at the time. I went with my husband and my sons, and she took us to this playground there, which is an adventure playground, which for listeners who might not know, is a type of playground that was developed in 1943 in Copenhagen when that town was under German occupation. And the components of an adventure playground are that it's a vacant lot, that there are donated tools and, or scraps, and that it has the presence of a play worker who is there to facilitate the children's play but not to direct it. And when my friend led us to this space, which was, you know, there appeared to be you know, open fires. There were open fires that appeared to be unattended. There were children wandering around with saws and hammers. There were children in the trees. It was just, um, it was such a confrontation, really, with everything that I had come to learn as, a, you know, essentially a new mother trying to help my children in New York City where I live, you know, taking them to the playground. It was such an affront in terms of what was possible in space with children, that I felt it was, I absolutely had to start to make sense of it. It, it was like impossible. How could this exist and why? Why could this exist here and not near me? You know, it was, um, it was, it was a confrontation, but it was a beautiful one. You know, it was something that was, it just opened my heart. It was really, it, it just inspired me. It was one of those moments. I feel lucky to have had it. So this came about as a result of an invitation from a friend of yours. Right. And this friend of yours, this woman, Yelena, mm -hmm. she's a very interesting and unusual woman herself. Yes, she is a, an amazing person. She's um, a theater director, and she, was living, she had been living in Tokyo for only a short time. Her husband, her new husband, had gotten a job there. And um, her work in theater has really been a, a lot. It's ex experimental work and um, a lot of investigation about what's possible in space, 
where can we make a play? Can we make a play, you know, under a bridge? Can we make a play? Why can't we make a play in our apartment? Or what, you know, really asking a lot of questions about space. And so she was really an ideal guide for this kind of investigation I was starting to do of, well, what what is this? You know, why why is space so different? Um, what is local space? You know, and she was a, sort of a perfect Sherpa in that sense of when I was beginning to ask these questions. I like the way you use the term Sherpa in this <laughs> context. <laughs> she she also related to space just in her normal day-to-day life in very different ways as well. You tell a couple of stories about that. Particularly, there's the story in the Muji um, department store where she pretty much sets up her own little workspace in the middle of the store. Yes, yes. It was really, it was a, a revelatory moment just in that I was sort of, you know, flabbergasted at what she was doing. I had, I was wandering around with my son who was asleep in the stroller, and, uh, you know, of course, the, as anyone who's done that kind of travel knows, that the overwhelming kind of tiredness that, ex, you know, you experience in the first few days of arriving so far away from, you know, your time zone is, is itself a kind of, you know, perspective changer. But there she was sitting on the floor with these art supplies all around her, and, it just was, I had never seen anyone behave in a store this way. She was making a book for her husband on the floor, like in the children's department. And I, it was both comical and ridiculous and really powerful. She was letting her son kind of wander around, you know, amusing himself with the toys, which was something the store welcomed. But then she was also doing this other thing, like she... She was using it as an art-making space, which I thought was later, when I understood it, it was like, that was fantastic. She upended the entire structure of what the store was for in that little gesture, and I thought it was beautiful. But how did you react initially? I mean, the, the audacity of, of such a, such a well, gesture. Well, free... Yeah, frequently, Elena herself was a little bit like an adventure playground. In that uh-huh, uh-huh. I was like, what are you doing? I was a little, what, why, what, you know, get, stand, what's going, you know, there was that part of me, it's, I'm, I'm flashing on like the odd couple. It was a little bit of like, feel, I was a little bit of the Felix in that sense of, get up, you know, you shouldn't be doing this here. And But her, um, this great, she has this great quality of just, you know, a very calmly, she's a very calm investigator. And in fact, before she studied theater, she was studying science. She was wanted to be a scientist. And I feel like she has that kind of approach. You know, well, I'm in, you know, I'm here, I'm doing this thing, and it's an experiment, and that's what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's very refreshing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like she was, she's making her, herself at home, wherever she happens to be. Right, exactly. That was a beautiful quality that she demonstrated to me repeatedly on the trip, that everywhere was home. And um, it made me realize how my, you know, I was kind of scurrying, always wanting to scurry back to the safety of the apartment or whatever, because it's exhausting to be constantly in an environment where you don't speak the language, where, you know, you're trying to navigate all the time. And she, she con- her, her, her demonstration to me was just constantly to relax, let go, and trust. And that was a beautiful lesson, as much as it was also difficult. 
It reminds me of the way I observe children um, operating in space, in, in the outer world, in public. They, they seem to just let themselves run free if they're allowed to do so and, right. to, and to make their home wherever they happen to be, allow themselves to just play. And I often end up observing the struggles that, that occur between the children and the parents who many of them obviously don't think that's appropriate for their children to be, quote-unquote, like appropriating public space for their own devices. Right, right. I mean, any parent who sat with a child, you know, in a bus depot, in a waiting room, in a, you know, any space like that, in a hotel lobby, in a, you know, it's just the play, is, it, it, you know, you can't, you're, they're wired for play. Play, it never stops. And in some ways, when, after I wrote the passage that you, you just read, I realized that kind of what I was trying to get at was this, you know, in what's more common in Hindu culture of the idea of the world being at play. You know, we, uh, we play in a world at play. And so the Western concept of play tends to be more individual and heroic. You know, we take children to the playground and then they do their individual, you know, activities or, you know, we see them as operating against a background that's kind of stable where other culture views it, you know, that we are, at, we are ourselves at play within, you know, other forces. And I think that our tendency to kind of, that's harder for us to accept. And maybe in some ways, that's why our playgrounds look the way they do. Mm. So what you're saying is that we operate, or we're, we're taught to operate like little islands unto ourselves, whereas in reality, there, there's this infinite myriad of, of people and things operating, bouncing off each other, interacting continually. Yeah, well, in my, yes, we're a web, and we're the web. That's my view for sure. Yeah. A great interplay. Right, exactly. I love that word. And, and in our culture, play is, is this isolated, scheduled, um, contained, properly contained thing. Right. I mean, I feel that the upshot, you know, just personally for me, part of what has come out of the, of the book and the entire project is just realizing that the understanding of play is really, um, there's so much misunderstanding around it. And if anything, I've come to believe that it's much more powerful uh, than I initially even thought, you know, as a new mother or even as an artist. I mean, an, an, an artist. You know, that's our work. We do value play. But um, observing, you know, my children and the way that things are structured, it's really made me start to think about play differently and, and to really try to support it in different ways in our family life and with myself. I view it really now as, as a practice akin to med meditation for adults. For children, they're already there. They don't have to practice. But for adults, it, it's... Um, it, it feels that way. It's a, it's a lifeline. It's something that, you know, that, that makes us supple when we do it. It's, a, it's spiritual suppleness. Mm. Kind of like going home again. 
Right, exactly. And the fact that adult play, I think, is so, even to say that phrase, adult play, you know, you, you immediately sort of flash on, like, you know, cocktails and topless bars. I mean, it's not, it's, I, I think it's really something that adults are uncomfortable with. And my hope is that, um, it, you know, as, I mean, we're in a time of an intense change in our, in our, you know, on the globe right now with, with climate change and everything else, that the properties of play, that that kind of creative response to the world is something that is going to be seen as valuable and, and uh, instead of being, you know, really kind of shut down. And play for its own sake, not for gain. Like a lot of, a lot of the other, like in addition to the example you gave, there's also play like gambling play. There's this whole culture of, of going to Las Vegas and gambling, right. and that's considered play. There's also the play of, of sports where professional teams make huge amounts of money and millions of people sit at home and watch it and, and make a big, big partisan thing out of it. Well, it's funny that you say that. In one of the um, in one of the books that I read as part of this project, um, Homo Ludens by Johann Heisinger, he's one of the points he makes is that what we consider, you know, sports in our culture, and he wrote this in 1950. What we think of as the apotheosis of play in our culture, you know, professional sports. He's like, I'm sorry, but it's it's not play. <laughs> it's not. I know that you that the fans and the players would disagree with me, but he felt that the play spirit had been just sucked out of that activity, and that it was really um, seriousness that was it, it wasn't play anymore. Which I thought was a really interesting perspective. Mm. So, the title of the book is Savage Park, which of course refers to this playground in Tokyo that you visited. Savage is a really powerful word. Why did you yes. why did you use why did you call it Savage Park? Well, the Savage Park was the name that Elena and her son had called the playground when they took when they they said we're going to Savage Park. That is what they had dubbed it. And it I I would not have Probably I would not have wanted that for the title had I not also come upon this connection with the writer John Ruskin in terms of his um, list of the components of Gothic architecture. And savageness was one of those components. And I felt that I quote Ruskin a couple of times in the book because I feel like his understanding of architecture and of, uh, of building was so enlightening in terms of what I was witnessing in the playground. And I felt with that reference that the understanding of what savage is was very different. Of course, it has the other connotation also of, you know, being pr primitive or um, uncivilized. And, of course, the, you know, the play park has those elements. But I wanted to embrace that in the title. How old were the kids that you saw playing in the trees and hammering pieces of mm -hmm. wood together and playing with fire? And what was the age range? 
Well, that was really one of the moving things to me about the park was that it, it was an all it was for all ages. There were adults there, there were older people there, um, as well as you know the tiny children that you expect at the playground, as well as teenagers who are never at the playground in you know in New York City unless they're doing something untoward. You know, um, it was the two models I, I think of when I think of the of the play park are um, the art studio for one because it just had that vibe of materials being everywhere and chaos and kind of mess. And then the other one is the garden because it's it's a space that has that has everything in it, you know, and that has um it that has the trees are there. It's not you know, it's a dirt lot. Um it's not landscaped. It's not safetyified. It has it all, and the understanding is to, to keep it healthy, you know, that it needs it all. It's, it's not excluding. And it was very moving to me to see this older gentleman, in fact, and come to the play park in the mornings, and he, was, he would make small wooden toys, these Takatumbo, little flying helicopter toys. And, it, you know, it flashed for me. I only saw that kind of um, activity with my father when I was a kid. He would go to the you know, kind of a room off our garage and sort of tinker in there and make stuff or or fix stuff. And that, you know, that quality, that energy of having a, you know, a male making things is, you know, it's so fantastic. It's like, yeah, I'm here, I'm pursuing my work, I'm not, you know, I'm... To have that in the playground is a is a beautiful addition, and that it's so that would be so impossible in New York City to have an older guy walk into the playground with his woodworking stuff. I mean, you're not even allowed to enter the playground without a without a child in New York. So, it you know it was really um, it was moving to me to just see him use the space in a, such a casual but beautiful way. Was there any kind of supervision or were there any kind of attendance in Savage Park? Yeah, the play worker, um, Noriko, was, and she had two assistants. And the, the play worker is the person who is there to facilitate but not to direct. And um, certainly one of the issues in play, and we, when we were talking about you know, play being misunderstood, is that it's been so you know, co-opted. By uh, by adults and for educational purposes, and in in another book that I that I love that I read called um, the ambiguity of play by Brian Sutton Smith, he talks about he writes about the, this idea that um, you know play is a is a form of progress. That children's play is a rehearsal for you know something that they're going to do later. This notion has been so embraced and is so dominant um, because it. Re- it then requires an adult to kind of curate or, you know, supervise this this activity, which is you know so, you know so vital, and that our this do, the dominance of this idea has really blotted out any other understanding of what play is. And he he speculates whether or not this is really just because as a way to control children, because there really hasn't been any any progress made on proving this theory. It's just been wildly embraced which I thought was a really radical question and an interesting idea. Yeah, I I have a lot of issues with that myself Mm -hmm. when I observe children. And and there's you you mentioned this woman, um, Lady Allen, 
mm-hmm. who who came to the United States in the mid '60s to 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 observe American playgrounds. Can you talk about that? There was an interesting quote that from her. Right. Yeah. The um, she came. She was a after the you know adventure playground model was developed in, in Copenhagen. She was a huge proponent of adventure playgrounds, and she really helped to spur the development of adventure playgrounds in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. She was an articulate, um, amazing person. And she, when she came to the United States, she called our playgrounds an administrator's heaven and a child's hell. And it's, it's really... There's been so much writing really done when you start to scratch at it about how our playgrounds are, are you know, really crappy. The, the, there's a fantastic survey of American playgrounds by Susan Solomon, and the first line of the book is existing American playgrounds are a disaster. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a playground scholar, and that's the first line of her text. I mean, the fact that this hasn't been kind of... Um, taken up on a wider scale is really surprising to me, but I think it's because of this, it's a, it's a variety of components, one being that we sort of are, because we think that play is just going to sort of, children are going to grow out of it almost, you know, they, well, not almost, they grow out of it, and that because it's not that important or that we're really busy, you know, for the middle class is busy doing this thing, you know, cultivating children, having them do their lessons in piano, algebra, whatever it may be, and um, plays, it's just, not, it's just not that important, really, and, uh, and so I don't think people have taken up the cause because, it's, again, it's not valued. Well, what is it about American playgrounds that are like that? I mean, what, what's wrong with American p- playgrounds? Why, why are American playgrounds a hell for children? Well, I think that she's, when she made that quote, it was against this, you know, the adventure playground, which I'm describing in my book. It's against the understanding of, of what is possible, which is this kind of freedom, not a kind of, which is this freedom of activity to investigate a landscape with your whole self, you know, with your, um, to, to witness cause and effect in your environment, to have the environment be connected you know, it's a local environment. It's not, um, for instance, a, you know, a playground at McDonald's is like every single playground at McDonald's. It's not connected to local space. It's, um, it's something in which you can, you, it's very hard to witness any kind of cause and effect. I mean, another thing that came out of, you know, my, my study is that I think it's really the game designers, sadly, in some ways, who are asking the important questions about play right now. And by game designers, I mean computer game designers. Um, There's a fantastic book about game design called The Rules of Play by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen. And among the first things they they talk about and they ask in this book and they, they answer is, what is meaningful play? That's the first question. What is meaningful play? And I don't think we've we've really been able to witness the asking or answering of that question in playground design for, for a long time because of of cultural, you know, constraints and litigation issues. Did they um, answer that question? Yes, yes, they did. And part of what um, meaningful play is for them is that it's it needs to be a you need to be able to see the action, and it needs to be connected to the larger 
um, the prism of the game. You know, and so it's about this issue. Is it local? Can you, can you experience, you know, cause and effect? Can you experience, if you jump on something, you know, are you going to see an effect? I mean, it's not, um, it's about getting out of the padded room and, and, and feeling, you know, and, and having something happen. I, I think that's a, that's kind of what we're getting at is that um, how present are we able to be in a space that's been so um, made safe for us that we can't experience it? Well, that... Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah, there's, there's another quote. You, you quote another game designer, Chris Crawford. Yes. And he says, the most fascinating thing about reality is how it changes the intricate web work of cause and effect by which all things are tied together, the best way to represent this web work is to allow the audience to explore it fully, to let the audience generate causes and observe effects. Games provide this interactive experience, and it is a crucial factor of their appeal. Exactly. I, my jaw dropped when I read that. I really, and he wrote that in 1982, you know, I re- I mean, my sons are in prime game, um, prime game age right now, and I'm and I'm watching it. You know how how um, how much more appealing it is what's going on on the screen than what's possible outside. It's hard. So why why do you think it's so important for kids and people in general to be able to see the effects of their the cause and effect of what they're doing. Well, I think it's it's part of it's just a fundamental piece of being human. I mean, to know that we are, you know, to have an effect on the environment is to, to that we have <laughs> that we've created environments where that can't happen is some kind of. I mean, yes, it's a safetyification, but it's also some kind of massive denial. I think that actually is plugged into many other political issues, you know, about that are we're having a reckoning with right now. It's um it's it's everything. It's a human issue. It's a political issue. It's a it's a physical, mental and spiritual issue. I mean, are we here? You know, uh yes, we are here and the you know, we need to understand that fully and to take responsibility for that. That's that's ultimately um what what we're here for, to be here. At least in in my view, I'm not, I can't go anywhere else. <laughs> I'm here until I'm not here, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of value I want to put, give to my children, that this is a beautiful place. It's, it's, it's an amazing place, this world. And yet, in, in, a, in our culture here in America, people, parents seem to be obsessed with protecting their children at all costs. Right. I mean, you only have to say, you know, the name of one child who's been in a fatal playground accident to just sort of undercut, you know, is the loss of any child is a, is a tragedy beyond, you know, comprehension, of course. But to to feel that we would be in a world where that would never happen is also a kind of, you know, a kind of fantasy that um, is impossible, you know? Yeah, I th- the world is a, 
is a risky place. I mean, yes. we can't control circumstances and conditions around us. Right. And it reminds me. Go yeah. ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just, I was thinking I had, an, I had a, I'm a physical recently, and it, it's, um, you know, I think that it's almost like the disconnect between the doctors understand that every human being is at risk and that I was asking my doctor, like, didn't they just say that mammograms are kind of pointless? You know, anyway, what's going on with mammograms? And, and she was explaining that, you know, no, the, 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 the new language was that it's, you know, that your mammogram is normal, but then they put this sort of other language in it to kind of cover themselves and that every person is at risk in a different way. And I think that it's, it's so, we, you know, I just want my mammogram to come back that's just normal, and it's just like, that's the end of the story. You know, <laughs> I just want it to be in a box, and it's just not possible. You know, anything can happen. And um, we have to embrace the unknown that way. It, it's just it's part of what, of, of what living is about. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. One of the issues that I understand about mammograms and this whole health obsession is this the notion of false positives cropping mm-hmm. up and false positives are really they just tend to reinforce the sense of fear fear right. fear of all the negative possibilities and they abound they they exist in this world around us um life just you know when you're born you come into this world you you're subject to to risk in space, there's a nearly infinite amount of risk because we're dealing with an infinite number of variable components that are revolving around us. Right. It's a world at play, truly. It, it's yes. a world at play, yeah, exactly. And and I've heard many people talk about life, You that life and death are inseparable companions. You You cannot... You cannot um, have life without death. You cannot have life without risk. You can't. So naturally, you can't have play without the risk of, you know, the danger of, of risk. And right. So, what was your first reaction when you when you saw kids in the trees and and doing all these? Um, heretofore outrageous things freely in, in Savage Park. I mean, I don't know how hey. you were brought up, but it, right. must have, it must have stirred up quite a bit of stuff for you. Right. Well, I mean, I was beside myself in the way that I feel like, you know, I reserved for great art. Like, it was the kind of um, just completely... I had to sit down. It was like that, you know. I had to sit down and collect myself because I was staggered. Um, and for me, and I, I do think this plays into it. I mean, you were we've been talking about space, but when I was a kid, I was very involved in a sport. I was a figure skater, and um, figure skating is a very strange sport. It has a lot of <laughs> it. It has a strange aspiration to like musical theater. I think in a way that other sports don't, but it it. The one thing that it did give me, which I, I value very much, is that I spent a lot of time alone on the ice. I was at the rink at odd hours for a variety of reasons. And that kind of 
that I feel like that experience widened my understanding of how big I could be. To be alone on a in an ice rink and to be trying to articulate music with your body was a very good um, training ground for me. I feel as somebody who would later write about a playground and play, it it has a lot of the same components of of feeling and of using your body and of possibly falling and of of finding great beauty. You know, so. I feel like even though there's no similarity really between an adventure playground and an ice rink, in some ways I, what resonated for me was the degree of possibility in this place and um, what, was, you know, what was possible for expression. It, it just felt, it felt um, gigantic in a way that was so moving to me. So you're... Figure skating sounds identical to dance, free, yes. free dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In, in, improvisational, right, in yes. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I value that. I love improv. I value that very much. Yeah, me too. And what, one, of, one of the most enjoyable things I've done in my life is, is improvisational dance, particularly oh, cool. contact, awesome. contact improvisational dance with other wow. people. But you know that that sounds like it, it's totally in, in line with with Savage Park with with free play and the the chaos the improvisational nature of of that kind of play where you you take up anything available and use it as part of your expression. Right. Cause I mean, we, the thing that that's interesting about figure skating is that it. You know, unlike, there's only very few sports that really involve music as a kind of, you know, a generating force. You know, that the, the point really is that you're using, that the sport is inseparable from music. And in, in the Adventure Playground, it was moving to me also that people used it also as a, as a music space. I mean, daily, people would just come there to play guitar. There was a woman who was working, I'll never forget this, she was... She, would, she was working on Daydream Believer on the recorder, and she came and played Daydream Believer like 60 times in a row, you know. And um, just to hear that, her little hooting in, in the space was magical. So anything goes. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was just like, oh, there she is again. She's working on Daydream Believer. <laughs> you know, she's getting better. Mm-hmm. It's uh, <laughs> And she was, you know, probably in her 30s. I mean, it wasn't, it was like, yeah, it was awesome. It was fantastic. I can't, you know, th- that kind of um, cross, you know, cross medium, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, the only thing that was really missing, I guess, as a painter. If Jackson Pollock had showed up, then, I mean, that would have kind of just completed it. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen while I was there, sadly, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe now, you know. There was a piano in the play park also. So that was it was an invitation for music. So how how do you relate with your children when it comes to play and how how does their play how does how do their impulses toward play um fit in your life? How do you respond to that? How do you feel about that interplay, that interdynamic between you, what your needs are, what you're wanting and what they're wanting and needing? 
Right. Well, I, I have felt that my, you know, just personally my attitude towards my play and their play has changed tremendously as a result of this project, and I feel like I'm very devoted in our family life to making play happen, and I think it's much more so than before I took this trip. Like, I do think it's really important for my children to see me playing. It's important for them to know that adults play, that um, that it's, it's, it's something that it, you know, that's valuable forever as long as we live. And so, um, you know, it's not always easy to play. This is why I kind of, I think of it akin to meditation. I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, my gosh, the last thing I want to do is play with my daughter with her dollhouse. I want to sit and collapse because I'm exhausted. But it's it's kind of to find creative ways to play on a small scale even when I'm not into it, is always, I, I'm always happier afterwards, you know, and I've found one of, my, one of my key objects is a rubber band. I can do amazing things <laughs> with a rubber band. It's amazing how many games you can make up or puppets you can make or just a rubber band. To, I can sit and play with my daughter for a rub, with a rubber band for a really long time, and that's been a fantastic discovery to make. Would you like to read something? I'd be happy to. I, okay. Um, if you could read from the beginning of page 104. Sure. In the time since Mick, King, Frank, and I first visited Elena in Tokyo, it's been five years now, I wouldn't say I have done a spectacular job of providing any particularly Hanagi play parky and experience for my boys here in New York. The boys are seven and nine now, and they hammer and do home repair occasionally with Frank. We grow flowers and vegetables on our terrace amid the truck exhaust. I let them jump on the couch cushions. They play the piano more or less reluctantly. That's about it. What I have done, I hope, is try to keep this idea of play freely at your own risk in mind as much as possible and try to communicate to the boys that playing is not what we are here for necessarily, or even what we are doing here, but how we are here. I don't know if I'm having much success. King has started homework this year, and despite my theories, play for him is not a state of consciousness. It's not really an action either, though. It's more a way of saying freedom. When King says he wants to play before doing his homework, what he means is that he wants the time slash space to not be bothered by me. What he does in that time slash space is not that important. He likes to read, draw, build, play ball, and chat with Mick. Whatever he chooses, the critical part is that he is not directed. He is keen to seek this unfetteredness, and his viewpoint humbles me. For all my fussing about playground aesthetics, he does not really care too much about the kind of playground he is in. If the space is padded and disinfected, fine. If it's Savage Park, fine. The environment is not the issue. The issue is the degree to which he perceives that he is free, and for the most part, free means being left alone to do what he wants. Of course, what he wants is not always possible. No, you can't punt the football in the living room. And this has made me think about his freedom or relative lack of it. 
and try to think of what we can do to feel more free. It's amazing to discover how difficult this is. It's ridiculous, and the boys know it, but I have taken to calling blank sheets of paper SSOFs, or Sacred Squares of Freedom. The name came about because King had a homework assignment about the political turmoil in Egypt, and Mick was reading over King's shoulder. Later that night, I asked Mick what we should suggest as the name of his Little League baseball team, and he said, Protesting People of Egypt. Nice, I said, P-P-O-E. His team is called the Neptunes. I like that passage. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite things to do in public is to watch children, particularly in grocery stores, on the street. It's like everything they do is play Mm. if they're not being overly contained. And, And around here, fortunately, there are a lot of fairly enlightened parents who who really let their kids run pretty free. They're not obsessed. Well, up here we're it's pretty rural and our local town is is quite small. I grew up in Manhattan, so I know mm. I know all about crossing streets and all of that. But w- we don't really have the dangers up here. In fact, cars have to yield for passengers in the middle of the street or anywhere, which is pretty much the opposite of New York City, <laughs> where, where passengers, I mean, pedestrians, you, don't, you almost don't even have time to, to observe street lights. You have to observe the movement of cars. Right. I mean, the first thing you stress about as a parent is just teaching the child the grid. You know, in Manhattan, it's just like they have to understand the, the grid. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's critical. It's that sounds like a lovely law that you have. <laughs> it seems so quaint as I'd watch people, you know, blindly, obliviously crossing the street, and I'm thinking, God, they wouldn't last a day in New York City. <laughs> yeah, and, pedestrian deaths is a real, it's a real issue. It's, yeah. Yeah. I'm so enjoying this conversation. One other thing that I I always like to try to say if I have time and and a microphone is just that one thing that I hope the book also encourages is the idea that it takes courage to raise whole children. Um, I feel that an an understanding of play and and a tolerance and allowance for it is part of the process of, of raising whole children. And also in my reading, there's another writer whose work I love, D.W. Winnicott, the child psychoanalyst, and he has a really beautiful, moving passage on raising children. And if it's okay, I would love to read that. Oh, I would All love right. to. And and I just quickly want to ask, how much time do you have to be on? I can be on for about 10 more minutes. Is that okay? That would be wonderful. Okay. <laughs> we'll use all of it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is from his book, Playing in Reality, which has become a real touchstone for me. And Winnicott was really... One of, I mean, he had so many amazing qualities as a writer and, you know, as a psychoanalyst, but he really was a master, I feel, of non-intrusion in terms of approaching children. And I, I love this quote from this book. He, he writes, If you do all you can to promote personal growth in your offspring, you will need to be able to deal with startling results. 
If your children find themselves at all, they will not be contented to find anything but the whole of themselves. And that will include the aggression and destructive elements in themselves, as well as the elements that can be labeled loving. There will be this long tussle which you will need to survive. I just think that's jaw-dropping. There's no, I have seen no echo of that incredibly intelligent idea in any parenting manual, you know, that we would welcome the incredible strength of our children, you know, that we would understand that this is going to be part of what we sign on for, a life and death struggle, so that they may grow strong. I mean, I feel like, my, why is my pediatrician not talking to me about this? Instead, it's about family dinner. Like, what is the, what's going on? That is a masterful idea. And um, any way in which that my book can be supportive of that kind of growth for children, I am... I'm um, honored by and I hope to encourage. Mm, I'm totally there with you. I got that by neglect. You know, being a, <laughs> a, a latchkey kid from as far back as I can remember in, you know, on the streets of Manhattan, I learned to survive on my own in the street. I walked to school on my own or I ended up taking a bus or a subway to get around. Right. From probably the age of six. Wow. And they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. And I had an early experience of being held up at knife point by other kids. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Well, after that, I was on high alert. Right. <laughs> so it, it never happened again. I could, right. I could see uh, you know, other kids or gangs of kids coming a block away. Right. And you knew. And I knew. I had to take full responsibility for myself. So in a way, it was a good thing, but um, it's not ideal. It's nice to be able to learn that in a more supportive environment. Right. The thing that, when, the thing that is missing or when you get that from your parents of this idea that, you know, that they're there to encourage you to be as, as strong, as big, as um, boundary-breaking you know, or as, you know, as possible is really the kind of an okayness about it. I mean, I think a lot of people are schooled by the school of hard knocks, right? But mm-hmm. to, to have it, to be, to find your strength in a supportive environment is a completely different experience. And I would say that we, we make the best of what we, we have. And that's, I think that's a big part of the play of life is you, you work with the scraps that you have. And I think that's a lot of what the Hanegi Play Park or Savage Park was about. You work with what's there. And I remember having ideas of creating a space like that where you have tons of junk and tools and welders so that kids and adults could come and just play, create and play. Oh, I love that, that you had that idea in in your apartment growing up. Well, not in my apartment. I, I wanted to create a, a large space for people to do it in. Wow. Like that's it, amazing. It, ideally indoor and outdoor. Did you ever realize that in any way? Mm, not really. I mean, I had an artist for a father, so 
Mm. It was somewhat modeled for me, and as a result of that, I didn't really need to pursue it Mm -hmm. so much, but it was something that interested me. Um, Perhaps we could go out with one last thing. Um, Sure. You write a bit on creativity on page 106. Yes. I'm happy to read that passage. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have mom friends who tell me how wrong I am about various screen-based activities for kids, how great these things are, and how creative they use that word. Their children have been in, for instance, making a really cute birthday card for Grandpa with a particular program online. I don't know what to say to this in polite conversation, because when I hear things like this about creativity, I want to cry. I want to cry because my understanding of creativity is that creativity, in its fullest, most cherry blossomish flowering, wants to pee on your grave. Creativity is like this because it is a force. It is powerful, overwhelming, fiery, and insatiable, and it cannot and should not be satisfied with arranging virtual flowers on a two-dimensional template that was structured by a greeting card company employee who was thinking about God knows what. Creativity wants to set fire to every greeting card you ever made. Creativity wants Grandpa to die already so it can race his Oldsmobile off the dock and into the lake. Creativity is like this because creativity is part destroyer. And in my limited experience, this is why creativity doesn't get many party invitations. But this is the good thing about creativity, too. It is a party crasher. So if there is just a little tiny space, an opening, that is enough, thank you, for creativity to find its way through. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And it's been a great pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, Tony. I enjoyed this very much. So did I. There's so much more I would have loved to talk with you about. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye-bye. That was Amy Fusselman. She's the author of a new book, Savage Park, a meditation on play, space, and risk for Americans who are nervous, distracted, and afraid to die, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for listening. Must be the brew that I was sipping. Life is my-